0: Nobody Told Me. I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. On this episode, we're going to explore some of the questions you may want to ask yourself to gain self-compassion, discover your purpose, and explore who you want to be. We've been really looking forward to talking with our guest, Dr. Corey Yeager. Dr. Yeager is a marriage and family
1: therapist who is the team therapist and life coach for the Detroit Pistons. His clients have also included the Oprah Winfrey Network and the Smithsonian Institute. Dr. Yeager is the author of a wonderful new book called How Am I Doing? 40 Conversations to Have with Yourself. Dr. Yeager, thank you so much for joining us.
2: I am so happy to be with both of you. Thanks for having me.
1: We want to know what sparked your desire to write this book because it's a fabulous book, fabulous idea. What's behind it?
2: You know, it really comes from all the work that I've been doing therapeutically and the questions, the conversations that I ask people to have with themselves in the book were really questions I was asking others therapeutically. So I'm in therapy with them, doing therapy with, with clients, and I'm asking these series of questions. So time after time, I would start to say, all right, so after the session was over, what do I think about that question? How would I answer that question? And from that, the opportunity came for me to write a book that I thought would be helpful in having people get better acquainted with themselves. So that's really the genesis of how the, the book came to be
0: the book starts out with a conversation called who is the most important person in your life. And already I felt like I was kind of getting into a heated discussion (laughs) with you because I I automatically thought to myself, my, my family members, my mom, let's say, for example, um, as my number one, not myself, but you would say that really wasn't the right answer and that we should be the number one person in our own lives. Tell us why.
2: Well, we really should, if you think deeply about it, that for me to be the best version of myself and be supportive of everyone else in my life, and that's what I love to do. I love being supportive genuinely with all kinds of people. But for me to do that, I must first have my glass full. My glass must be full before I can begin to pour to others, because it doesn't make sense for me to be pouring out to everyone else, and I look at my glass, and I just have a drop or two. So I'm on empty, but I'm pouring into everyone else. So when do we take the time to say, hey, let me pour into myself first and foremost. And then once I have my glass full, everything that's left is for everyone else. But I'll pour as much as I can afford to everyone else. So making, getting people the opportunity to understand that put yourself first. It's really that metaphor, if you're on a plane, and they're going through their spiel at the beginning of the flight about if we have a water landing and the, and the mask drop down, what do they tell you? They tell you to put your mask on first. Well, why would they do that? Because if I'm fumbling with a mask trying to put it on my, my, my daughter or my son and I pass out, now we're both in trouble. So taking care of self first gives way for the opportunity to take care of others. So that's why I made it that point from the beginning.
1: But how can we do that and not feel guilty about it? Because as a mom, as a wife, I I've wrestled with the same uh, issues that Laura was saying, that it, it's like, oh, I, I shouldn't be the most important person in my life. So how do we do that and not feel guilty?
2: Yeah. So the first thing I would say is that guilt is so self-imposed. It is self-imposed that I put it on myself. No one makes me feel guilty about taking care of myself. I do that to me myself oh i shouldn't do that but what is the what's the reasoning behind that usually we don't have a great reason i just i just want others to see me as being so giving and i believe that i can be very giving by taking care of myself first and still remain to be just as giving if not more so because now i'm showing up in the world a better version of myself because i've taken care of myself so I think this, this concept of guilt is something that we want to grapple with, right? So where does that guilt come from? What, do I, what does it make me? Why do I feel guilty if I take care of myself? If I say, I'm going to take a spa day, today is my day. I'm going to pamper myself. Why, as I go through that day, am I saying, I still feel guilty? I should be taking care of everyone else. So I should be giving someone else a spa day, and I wouldn't take that. That doesn't necessarily make sense. Not to me. Maybe it does the others, but to me, it didn't really make sense. So that's really, that's where that came from as well.
0: Since your father died when you were young, you probably have some conversations that you wish you had been able to have with him and maybe feel guilty that you didn't have with him or things you wish you'd said. What mm-hmm. conversations do you recommend that we have with our loved ones, even if they're not terminally ill, so that we don't have mm-hmm. those same regrets going forward?
2: Yeah, so I write about in the book, a little over a year ago, I lost my sister and we were really, really close and I was troubled. And we both knew that she was coming to the end of her life and the transition was close. So I kept struggling and struggling and struggling. And then I called her one day and said, sis, we need to have a conversation about your transition. And this is not easy. And I do not want to have this conversation, but I know that it will pay dividends for me as I am left here after you transition. And I want you to know how meaningful and how important you have been in my life, how much your legacy will live on after you're gone. You will never be absent from my thought. The things that I tell people about you, you will always live on. So having a very tough conversation actually has served me well since she transitioned. So I do believe that even though those conversations aren't easy, just because it's tough, doesn't mean we lean away from it. Let us be clear that all discomfort, all pain, oftentimes is an indication of growth. If I feel pain, if I feel discomfort, many times it's because I'm about to birth something that's bigger, that I'm, a gr- I'm growing into a new space. So, so instead of leaning away and saying, well, I just, oh, I'm so nervous about that. I just don't want to do that. And I don't know how that would go. Let's lean into some of those things. Let's have some of those tougher conversations. Let's learn to do battle with ourselves and with others. And from that, I think we can gain benefit.
1: Another one of the questions that you urge people to explore in your book is, who is the author of My Life Story? Tell us more about that. What, what goes into that question and what we should be looking for as we try to answer it?
2: Yeah, that I believe that each of us has a story. We all have a story to tell. Um, And I think all too often, we allow others to be the narrator or the author of our stories. For instance, people will tell you what they think you should be. So I was a big kid growing up. I was always the biggest kid in my class from a young age. So everyone was telling me, you're going to be a football player. Oh, my God, you're going to be a Kansas City Chief. You're going to be a big kid. Oh, my God. So after a while, I believed, well, that must be what I have to give the world is my ability to be an athlete and to be big and use my size. So I believed the story that was written for me by everyone else. And then after football was done, I was lost. Like I don't really know who I am. I don't know what to do. So then I began a journey to write my own story, to discover who I was. Um, And from that process, I came to understand myself as an academic um, and as a thinker and as an author uh, and as a therapist. And those are things that I would have never discovered had I not done my own work and my own journey and start to become the author of my own story. So I challenge others to do the same, find ways in which to reauthor your story from today, from this point moving forward, we can make changes and reauthor. Um, so that's the challenge that I put to others, and I hope that they, they also draw benefit from that.
0: And one of the conversations that I think is very related to that is that conversation that that stood out to me that was, what untruths are you telling yourself about your current existence? That I know that really mm-hmm. helped you figure out what you were going to do after football. How yes. How can somebody else who maybe is going through a job or career change after the pandemic, now that it's all over, maybe they already went for their dream, gave up their job. Okay. Their dream's not working out. Who are they? What do they do? They're a failure. What advice would you give them?
2: Yeah. So I think that we have to reevaluate how we define success and how we define failure, um, understand what our dreams look and feel like, and then go about moving on those decisions. So I think that that we have to kind of refocus and relook at what is a failure? Because I don't necessarily believe that we have any failures in our lives. I believe that Nelson Mandela said it best. I live by his adage. And he said many years ago, in life, we never lose. We either win or we learn. So there could be struggles that we could categorize as failures. But I think that we could categorize them better and more beneficially by saying those are opportunities for me to Get better and learn because what we know in life is that we're going to make mistakes, but the hope is that you just don't continue to make the same mistakes. So, how do you not make the same mistakes? Well, that means you have to learn from those previous mistakes so we can tell ourselves untruths. Um, there was a philosopher, his name is Jean Paul Sartre, he was an existentialist, and he came up with a concept called bad faith, which really means we tell these lies over and over to ourselves. I can't leave this job, it's the only way I pay the bills. But deep down, we know I could leave the job. I could find something different. There's probably other ways that I could pay the bills, but we'll tell that story, that untruthful story over and over. And if we t- tell that untruthful story enough, it becomes our truth. So challenging and re-engaging with, all right, what untruths do I have? What am I telling myself that, I, that may not be true? So, and the only way you can really discover that is to take the time with yourself to engage with those understandings
1: and another question that, that really hit home to me uh, as a conversation starter that you talk about in your book is, do you ruminate on things in your past or in your mm-hmm. future? Explore that for us.
2: Yes. So in the therapeutic realm, psychological realm, um, when you ruminate about the past, you're probably starting to dance with the concept of depression. If you ruminate about what's gonna happen in the future, you may be dancing with the concept of anxiety. So both those ruminations can be problematic. So we don't, we don't wanna ruminate about what has happened in the past, because guess what, it's gone. Whatever happened is gone and ne- to never return. And what's gonna happen in the future, we have no idea. So the only true essence, the only true moment that we have in this world is the current moment that we reside in. So bring things back to the current moment, to the current existence, because it's the only reality that we hold. Um, So recognizing uh, that this rumination may not necessarily be healthy. Now that doesn't mean that, that I don't think about the past or what has happened. And it doesn't mean that I don't dream about the future. I don't ruminate. I don't get stuck and paralyzed in, Oh my God, what decision am I going to make? Oh my God, if this happens and and then that, and then what will I do? So I don't really get caught up in, in being stuck in those moments. That's that rumination that I hope we can avoid.
0: Something that I haven't done yet, but a suggestion I really liked from the book was the prompt to write a letter to the version of your former self to extend them grace or encouragement during a tough time and let them know how it turns out in the end. Mm. Yeah, how, how exactly, I, I was trying to figure out how I would write this to myself and how I would be able to use that letter and then not make those same mistakes in the future. What's mm-hmm. the a- ideal way to do that?
2: So th- this, this kind of com- comes from me doing the work around Taking everyone else's story about me being a big football player, um, and the way that I did it is, I sat down and I wrote a letter to the 15-year-old version of myself. So that 15-year-old version of self had just lost the most important person in his life, my father. Um, my mom had quickly after the death of my father said, "Well, we're not going to be able to afford to send you off to school, so I don't know what you're going to do. You're going to to figure out something, or maybe you get a good job in a factory and make a living that way, but I don't know what else to tell you. So I wrote a letter to the 15-year-old version of myself saying, you may be concerned and worried now, but with your hard work and dedication and who you are and the genuineness that you hold, people will recognize that, and you are much more than just a big body. And it may take a while for you to recognize it, but you are going to make it. You'll make it through all of that. And there will be so many brighter days that you have no idea are in the future for you. Um, So you no longer have to worry. One of the reasons I wrote that, and I I tell people to engage in that practice, is because oftentimes we have coping mechanisms that are set up uh, at at, at a time when we had trauma. So if you were 12 years old and you had a traumatic event or something didn't really go well, that 12-year-old version of you starts to say, I gotta protect myself. So you set up these coping mechanisms. All right, so I'm gonna, I don't want people to really be engaging with me personally. I don't want people to touch me. So now I have to create this version of myself that's really shy. And so that protects the 12-year-old version, but now I'm 49, 52, and I'm still using that same thing that I developed when I was 12. So I have to ask myself, does this still serve me? And if the answer is no, Then I go about reauthoring, recreating um, the version of my current self um, and allowing that former version to be okay with not having to protect me any longer. So that's where that came from.
1: And along those lines, you you urge people to ask themselves if they could change one experience in their past, what would it be and why? And why is that an important question?
2: Yeah, because this is that reflective process looking back to say, if I could change one thing, what would it be? And I wonder what, that, what my life would look like. So what I'm asking people to do with this question and this conversation is re-engage with that imaginative sense. I think that at about the age 11, 12, 13, we stop imagining. We stop being really imaginative. Um, because people tell us, well, high school's coming. You have to get your grades right. They're going to count. You're going to get out of middle school. And ninth grade, you don't want to screw up. You don't have time to be dinking around. So we're sold a bill of goods that, say, that says, don't use your imagination any longer. I think that's a huge mistake, that we should be more imaginative as time goes on. Because if I can imagine it, I can probably become it. But it's hard to become something that I can't imagine. So imagining back, if I'd have done this or that, what would it look like? And, I'm, and I, don't want you to, I don't want to ruminate about that and get stuck in it, but I want to play. I oftentimes see life as a playground, therapy as a playground. And if, if others invite me into the playground, I get to play and be curious. Well, what happened? And tell me more about that. And then if you can do that by yourself, it starts to open up opportunities. And I really think that's what the essence of the book is about.
0: I know that you talk about how important your grandma was in shaping who you have become. And you say that she wasn't the most educated, but she was one of the wisest and taught you this lesson that I think is so great about discerning the difference between wisdom and knowledge, because we're all Mm going to be getting so much advice from people Mm -hmm. who are maybe well meaning, maybe not, but it's hard to tell whether they're coming from a place of, of Knowing what they're talking about, I don't want to say no, yeah I mean there's a lot of voices out there yeah there's a lot of voices <laughs> so how did she tell you to discern the difference?
2: so she just sat down with me um, and spoke in very plain language, and it's kind of how I wrote the book, very similar to the way she spoke to me, um, and she told me I always put things down we were talking earlier, put things down conversations in a way that the goats can get it, is how she would say. So put it down there low where people can understand it. Um, so I can theorize. I have a PhD from a Big Ten universe. I can theorize all day, but that doesn't help others. Um, so finding out, figuring out that difference, differentiating between knowledge, which is just the attainment of information. You read a book, you do things, you can get information. Really important. But more important than just the attainment of knowledge is the application of that knowledge, which is called, in my my belief, wisdom. So how do I get the information and then apply that information to the benefit of myself and those around me? I think that's moving in a wise way. And I I seek to move with wisdom in all that I do. And she taught me that early on. Um, So not just holding that information, that knowledge base, but utilizing it in a way that, that is helpful for me.
1: Another one of the great questions in the book is you ask people to ask themselves, what can you do in 23 seconds? (laughs) What's the significance of that?
2: So the 23 seconds comes from my work in the NBA. So I was watching players. um, And from the moment that they would get fouled, um, they're playing and all of a sudden a, a foul occurs. There was about 23 seconds between the time the foul occurs to the time that they shoot a free throw. So I started asking players, hey, so what what do you do with that time between being fouled and shooting the free throw? And they all looked at me dumbfounded, like, I don't know, I don't do anything with it. uh who knows? So I started to ask them, hey, so wonder I wonder if it would be helpful if you use that 23 seconds. As soon as the foul occurs, go into a space that says, All right, calm yourself down you're breathing. Because then if I can do that, and then I get to the free throw line, a calmer version of myself is now at the free throw line. My heart rate is now lowered. And the chances that I make the free throw increase, maybe only three to 5%. But that three to 5% can equal a number of wins across the season. Um, so I utilize this with people and in the book to say, how can you find those micro moments to work on yourself, validate yourself, It doesn't have to be this big, huge, all right, I have to meditate for the first hour of the day. That's important, but I think just as important is using those micro moments um, to engage with self and settle. Um, So that's where the concept of what can you do with 23 seconds, it comes from the NBA world, but I think it's applicable for everyone.
0: You have these qualities that obviously make you invaluable to the Detroit Pistons. I know that uh, Dwayne Casey actually said that you were one of the most valuable hires that has ever been made in, in their history. I would love to know how you developed into this person that made made it so easy for people to confide in. I think that's something mm, we all yeah, want is yeah, to be that yeah. person for people we care about and to provide good advice. Is it something yeah. you were born with? Is it something you learned?
2: You know, I think it may be a, a dose of both. I think that I did come into the world um, with the parents and the and my grandparents living right next door, watching everyone around me, especially my grandmother, being someone that people confided in all the time. I used to watch people would, there would be lines of people coming to see my grandmother sitting outside by the garden. And she was talking to them. And she would always tell us, now go away, you can't be over here. But I knew they were talking about something important. From a distance, I could watch their body language and tell, man, there's something important there. And people kept coming. So I was, I was capturing the essence of that process. I didn't really know I was, but I was. And it served me well, because as time unfolded, people began to come to me. And I don't know that I had the best advice or not. Others may, would, would, would be the deciding factor on if my information or my advice was good, but people kept coming to me. And I think I honed the craft of supporting others um, in a wise way. Uh, and I think that's really what people uh, are looking for when they engage with others is they're seeking our wisdom, right? What wisdom do you have for me in this, with this question? Um, And I think really what I've learned to do is not necessarily say, hey, you should do this, that, or the other, but I really have learned to be curious with other people. And that's what these 40 conversations are. They're allowing and asking others to be curious with themselves, because I think we do a great job as human beings of being curious with others, but not quite as good of a job of being curious with ourselves. Um, So that's where really that, that concept or that idea came from.
1: One of the great points of many that you make in the book, you write that if we can laugh, we know we're going to be all right. And why is that important Mm. to keep in mind?
2: Yes, because a laugh and a smile releases endorphins. It releases things in our body that make us feel good. Um, So even though things could be chaotically going on around us, if I can find the ability to smile if I can find the ability to laugh at something, there's a part of us that would say, "Well, if I if I can laugh, then I'm going to be okay." Um, so, man, there's a, there's a book called "Man's Search for Meaning," um, and, and in the book, really, what the book is focused on is there was a man it was a psychologist that was in an in, uh, an intern, intern camp during World War II, and he said, "If I can watch." My wife be killed and my parents be murdered, but still have some modicum of smile or giggle left in me, then I know that I'll be okay. So, in those moments, if we are f- facing, he was facing life or death every day, but still found some positivity. So, if, if we know people can do that, then we can find positivity through the struggles that we have. Um, so, that's, that's a big message that I hope people get.
0: What conversations should we have with ourselves if we're dealing with struggling with comparing ourselves to other people, whether that's online or in, in your work, I'm sure players are yeah. comparing themselves to other players.
2: Yeah. I think that that comparison thing is not necessarily all encompassing bad. That, that sometimes it's not bad to compare. Um, but we also, as we compare, and I don't, I don't think we don't want to get stuck comparing all day, every day. We have to realize, especially in the world of social media, that social media is set up in such a way that people are only putting the positivity in their lives out. People aren't saying, "I'm struggling with this, that, and the other." That doesn't mean that some people don't do that sometimes, but overarching, usually people are using the social media world to tell you about all the positive things that they're dealing with um, and how good life is. Um, And we know, even though I'm putting all those positives out there, I'm still dealing with negativity in my life. Um, So recognizing that if we do compare many times based on the fact that we don't have all the information about the people that we're comparing to, it can be a false setup. It can be a false comparison. Um, So realize that. So I'm not saying don't compare at all, but take a modicum of, of relief to know I'm not getting the whole picture. Even if I'm comparing to that person, I'm not getting the whole picture on what their life is.
1: You've worked with people in all different walks of life, and I'm wondering what's the most common question you see across the board that people wrestle with?
2: The most common, that's a great question. The most common question that people wrestle with, will I be okay, I think is a question that people bring more often than not. I'm dealing with this, I'm dealing with that, and they're asking me for confirmation that they'll be okay. Okay. And I obviously can't tell you that you're going to be okay, but I can tell you that based on your life, if you're 40 years old, you come to me and you're saying, will I be okay? The first thing I would say is, have you had any struggles in the 40 years that you've been on this earth? Well, the answer is obviously yes. Mm -hmm. Well, have you made it through any of those struggles? Yeah, I'm here. Well, that means you've got a track record of 100% of making it through struggles. 100% of the time you made it because you're here. So now that means I have a good chance of making it through the struggles for the next 40 years. So that that question of, will I be okay? Kind of elicits the opportunity for me to point out that in your past, you've had struggles and you've been okay. So the chance that you'll be okay in the future is pretty high.
0: I love that. Yeah, I do too. (laughs) As you know, our show is called Nobody Told Me. So at the end of each show, we ask our guests, what is your Nobody Told Me lesson? So what is it that nobody told you about how empowering self awareness can really be that you wish you had known when you were younger, before you began any sort of athletic career or your career now, just as a kid that would have helped you avoid A lot of time and energy and what have just made you have a happier life, I guess. or An easier time. Yeah, Uh,
2: I think think no one told me um, that I could really ultimately be what I chose to be, that I didn't have to just go with the story that was laid out for me. No one told me that. I had to discover that on my own. And it's probably the reason that I wrote the book and do the work that I do is so I can tell that story to others that you have all the ability. I believe that we have everything in our possession as it currently sits to be successful, everything. Whatever I need for this moment, I have everything in in my life to be successful. Um, No one really told me that. I thought that the struggles would continue to ensue, didn't know how it would unfold. So I didn't really know that the future was gonna be okay. So no one told me that I could control that process um, and through that concept, that, that space of self-awareness, I could really do my own discovery. So no one told me that, and I wish they would have. It's a and great Dr. question. Dr.
1: Yeager, how can people connect with you on social media and the internet and find out more about your work?
2: Yes, yeah, so you can go to drcoreyeager.com, spell out Dr. Corey, C o r e y y e a g e r. Um, dot com. That's my website. But you can go really. You can Google my name, Dr. Corey Yeager. Um, the book is on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, really any of the booksellers that you find. Um, so if you just Google me, you'll find on my Instagram is Dr. Corey Yeager. Um, my TikTok is Dr. Corey Yeager. So you can find me anywhere just using that that handle.
1: All right. Well, we thank you so much that you are filled with so much wisdom. And, you know, I, it occurred to me while we were talking that one of the things that is great about you, and I think probably one of the things that's made you such a tremendous success is that you are
0: yourself, you know, you're not trying to be somebody else and, and telling everybody it's all going to be okay too, because then you could be considered a liar. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's right.
2: That's right. That is right. I'm
1: but back. yeah, I,
0: I, <laughs> I mean,
1: I, I just, I think we can all relate to the wisdom that you're, you're passing on and, and we just really thank you for spending the time with us.
2: Well, I appreciate the time. It was really fun. Thank you so much.
1: Again, our thanks to Dr. Corey Yeager, whose new book is called How Am I Doing? 40 Conversations to Have with Yourself. His website again is com. I'm Jan Black.
0: And I'm Laura Owens. You're listening
1: to Nobody Told Me. Thank you so much for joining us.